all of these big uh, corporate entities right now think they need to do something with mobile, but they have no idea what to do with mobile. People that use their mobile device, the Facebook on their mobile device, are 50% more active on Facebook than non-mobile users. Since I think designing for mobile is important, I'm not just going to tell you it's important. I want to give you some practical things that you can take away right now to go and start making mobile experiences. Thanks everyone for coming to Zurb Soapbox. Super stoked to have Luke here. Luke, uh, the entrepreneur in residence of Benchmark Capital and uh, quite recently founder of a stealth startup, which we all want to know more about and uh, looking forward to. So Zurb 2.0. <laughs> He's, uh, of course, the former, former chief design architect at Yahoo, where he was responsible for one of the most traffic websites in the world. No big deal. <laughs> and, um, of course, the author of Web Form Design and Sightseeing, a visual approach to website usability. These books were praised by folks such as Jacob Nielsen, Irene Au, and many, many others. So, with that, let's welcome Luke to his second Zerb Soapbox. So I want to apologize to you guys sitting behind me. I, I, want, I could try doing it like this, but I don't think it's going to work. Okay, you guys all right? All right. Um, so yeah, thanks for having me. Excited to uh, be giving this talk in a small or intimate kind of venue. Uh, to set some context, I originally pulled this uh, presentation together to go and talk at um, this conference for web designers and really trying to put the focus on people that have been traditionally building for the desktop web and uh, give them a little bit of an awareness about why they should start caring about mobile a bit more emphatically than they currently care. And uh, since then, I've actually gone into a couple corporations and walked them through the same talk, uh, Walmart, Netflix, uh, LinkedIn, doing Best Buy pretty soon. And it's, I, the reason I bring that up is because it's really, really interesting how all of these big uh, corporate entities right now think they need to do something with mobile, but they have no idea what to do with mobile. So there's a huge opportunity, one, for people who have been doing web application and web services design for, and development for quite a while to take advantage of mobile, and then B, you know, the people out there that have the investment capital to do interesting things are very, very interested in this and foaming at the mouth and are just waiting for people to come in there and say, this is what you should do, because they uh, don't seem to have that. So this is an approach that I've sort of been talking about, and it's pretty simple, which is do the web, do the mobile version first. When you're thinking about something that's going to be a networked integrated service, whether it's you know social based or productivity based, um, or analytics based, if you build the mobile version first, some interesting things start to happen. And usually, it's done very much the opposite way, right? We build for the desktop first, and then we think about how to port it over. And I think that's increasingly a backwards way of doing it. And um, the kind of sub bullet here is even if you're not planning a mobile version, this is worth doing. I'll explain why in a little bit. But uh, don't just take my word for it. There's actually a lot of other people who are a little bit more qualified than myself to speak on such matters, uh, one of which is the CEO of Google, who's basically saying that the uh, folks at Google are doing mobile first because A, they create better applications, and B, that's what the top programmers over there want to do, and which Google is sort of run by what the programmers want to do, um, <clears throat> for better or worse. And uh, he feels that the mobile phone is really this 
intersection of three intertwining factors that really define technology trends. One is computing power. We got more computing power in smaller and smaller packages over the years. Uh, connectivity, everything's sort of connected to the network now. And uh, cloud computing, when you get connected, there's services uh, sitting on those servers. There's uh, content sitting on those servers. So through that connectivity, you can actually do stuff. Okay, but don't just do things because Eric and I say so. Because Eric and I say so, here's some actual reasons, and I'll walk through each of these. First one's really about the growth that's happening in mobile, and it creates an opportunity not just to have a mobile version of your site, but to have an integrated experience across mobile and across the desktop. I uh, sat in, in my uh, current role as an entrepreneur in residence at Benchmark Capital, I sat in at a half-day presentation of all the companies that Benchmark has invested in, and it was amazing how many of the companies there were seeing additive engagement and additive growth through the mobile experience. So companies like Yelp, companies like OpenTable, companies like Zillow, all saw mobile as an addition to what they were doing relative to the amount of engagement they have. Right? So they got a million users on the desktop, and then the people using their mobile version are adding to that. Right? So it's not that they're moving from the desktop to mobile, it's all kind of coming together and creating even more uh, opportunities to provide value to customers. Uh, so growth is happening. Uh, constraints, I think if you work within the constraints that exist in mobile, you're going to end up with a better product overall when you move it to the desktop. And then third, but not least, the capabilities that we have in portable computing devices now really, um, <clears throat> instead of outside of computer processing power, the capabilities we have from a sensor detection and from an environment awareness perspective blow away what we have on a desktop or on a laptop, which creates a ton of really interesting design opportunities. And since I think designing for mobile is important, I'm not just going to tell you it's important. I want to give you some practical things that you can take away right now to go and start making mobile experiences. So the first one is this opportunity that the growth of mobile uh, provides. For years now, people have been saying mobile is the next big thing, and it's kind of become sort of a <clears throat> cliche. But if you look at what's actually happening now, a lot of really good data is coming from uh, Morgan Stanley Research. They're doing a lot of releases of uh, really interesting information. And the only thing to note here is if you add up the amount of connected devices, uh, including you know tablets, cell phones, smartphones, wireless home appliances, things like the Kindle, you're looking at a 10x increase in the amount of devices that are accessing web content than can currently access it through sort of the desktop 1 billion device model. And um, if you remember the exponential growth that the web have had back in its heyday, that's still in the heyday, but when it was growing exponentially, the uh, mobile web is growing eight times faster than that, which is just astounding. And like literally next year, um, many predictions say smartphone sales are going to surpass PC sales. In other markets, that's already happened around the globe, but uh, in the U.S., this is coming. And so why did this happen? You can call me a fanboy if you like, but the process of browsing the web on a mobile device before the iPhone, before June 29th, 2007, basically sucked. If anybody's tried to use the web on a you know, <coughs> feature phone, it's abysmal, right? There was really no reason to do it. It was awful and terrible, and therefore no one did it. As soon as Apple kind of came out and said, well, here's a device that makes it not suck and actually makes it kind of good and in some cases great, the usage took off, right? So AT&T, who's been um, kind of the exclusive carrier of this device, has seen a 50 times increase in three years. And I have a whole bunch of other statistics on how mobile's growing. If you need that to go and convince bosses or clients or anybody who 
pays the bills, that mobile's important, you can go in there and see just crazy numbers across the board about uh, the impact that this stuff is having. So <clears throat> that's one thing. But it's not just an opportunity to say, hey, there's this huge growth curve, let's get on that and ride it. It's also an opportunity to integrate what's happening when people are on the go with the existing service they have. So instead of porting, really thinking about a more holistic experience. And um, this is Joe Hewitt. You guys can't see him so well, but he made this app. So this application on the uh, Apple iPhone or I, uh, the whatever app store, it is locked in sort of this one-two battle with the Koi Pond app for number one place. Pretty consistently, week over week. One time Facebook will win, and the Koi Pond app will win, and Facebook will win. But regardless, it's one of the most popular mobile applications on that platform. And uh, I really like this quote from Joe, and he says, you know, first I was trying to do this port. I was trying to make this mobile companion for Facebook. But then as he got into it and he started building it, he actually realized it was able to create a version of the product that was actually better. And if you look at the numbers on Facebook, people that use their mobile device, the Facebook on their mobile device, are 50% more active on Facebook than non-mobile users. Within the course of uh, six months, Facebook moved from 65 million people on Facebook mobile to 100 million people. Right, so this is getting a lot of engagement. So there's an opportunity to capitalize on this growth, this kind of next big computing cycle, and there's an opportunity to integrate and think about this as a new, uh, uh, how shall I say, complement to the experience that provides incremental growth that ties into what's happening on the desktop. But the other really exciting thing from a design and development perspective is that designing for mobile really forces you to focus and prioritize because of screen size, um, performance, and uh, the constraints of kind of the mobile context. So the first constraint that I want to talk about here is screen size. And essentially, if you're designing for a typical web service or application on a laptop or a desktop, this is how much screen space people generally plan for, right? A 1024 by 768. Move to a device such as uh, the first three gens of the iPhone, the first couple Android phones, or the first line of Palm phones, and you got 320 by 480 pixels, which means you just lost 80% of your canvas. So 80% of the space you had to put shit on is gone, which I think is awesome. And why do I think this is awesome? Because it forces you to really get down to the things that people actually care about, right? What are the things that are most important? And let me show some examples. So this is Southwest Airlines on the web. Everything in here I care about. This is Southwest Airlines on the mobile. And there's just this great alignment in this experience here between what Southwest Airlines does and what I want <clears throat> as a user. They sell airline and car reservations. I can get in, check into my flight. I can see how my flight's doing. I can manage my rewards. And because it's a mobile device, fare alerts maybe matter a little bit more. If something goes down, I have my phone with me all the time. I can get an alert. Right? So here, this whole experience is really focused on the things people want to do and the things that are good for the business and nothing else versus that. Right? So if Southwest Airlines started with this experience where they have to get rid of 80% on the percent of the stuff on the screen, it really gets them down to a, a focus, which when they come back to the desktop, maybe they end up with something like this, which ironically, this was the Southwest Airlines website before they did this. So I don't know what the hell is going on over there. Um, I think they hired a new VP of marketing. That's my suspicion. 
And you'll note here in this in this version, you know, this fair alerts isn't as prominent. When I say do the mobile version first, there's things that make sense on the mobile device that maybe don't make sense on the desktop. And so it, the, the two things don't have to be exactly the same, but most cases you don't want to deprive people of the things that you do that they like just because they're on the go. Uh, so most of the stuff's the same, but there may be a little bit of variation. Another example that you guys may be familiar with, this is a Flickr. You probably know that this is a photo sharing site, but you might not know all the things it does. In fact, Flickr has grown a lot over the years, and just looking at the number of options that they present to you in, the, in this version, there's 60 plus things here that you can do on the site. When they designed the mobile version, they got it down to eight. Right? And the eight things, you check out what's happening in terms of uh, who's commenting on your photos, what they're doing, see what kind of photos your contacts are uploading, see what's new and interesting. And again, I mentioned there's this mobile component, see which photos are nearby. So how does Flickr go from 60 plus things down to eight? Well, they really, really have to know their audience. And this is sort of design 101, right? Know your audience, know what they're doing on the site, understand where you're creating value and where that creates value for your business, and focus on that. And mobile really makes you do it. And there's no choice when you lose 80% of your pixels. You can't have that kind of experience. But it, this doesn't just apply to uh, kind of sites at the top level. This is a page on Expedia where you see your flight itinerary for a trip you booked on Expedia. The part of this page I care about is that. Everything else should just pixelate and die and go away. Right? I don't need any of that. The mobile version of Expedia, ironically, does that and even does it even better. Because here there's just this big thing. Here's when you're leaving. Here's when you're landing. You can tab through the different dates of your trip. You can tab through your different itineraries. And all this, I don't know what to call it, right? Um, cruft is gone, and it's just focused on what you need from the service and um, what you can do. So going through this process of getting down to 320 by 480 really forces you to focus, and in order to focus, you have to prioritize, and in order to prioritize, you have to know your audience and what you represent. So that is just very, very healthy. Uh, when you do this design for mobile process first, it's very, very healthy for the organization to keep whittling down what do they do, right? And somebody says, oh, well, what about this? Like, ah, there's not really room for that. Is it really as important as this? No. Okay. We just gain some clarity on what matters for us and for our audience. And one of the reasons why I like um, using kind of the iPhone as an example of where you can start trying to design for um, a mobile screen is they have a couple constraints that make it kind of good. So one, if you compare... Android versus, this is Android over here, this is the iPhone over here. Android and Nokia and a couple of these other devices, including Palm, have a menu button on the hardware, which gives you a whole bunch of options that you can access. So if you look at the iPhone, there's just this one button here. Whoops. Jeez. There's this one button here. And uh, on Android, they have this menu button. So what that gives you is essentially a miscellaneous bin where you can throw functions that you can't agree on. Whereas you can't do that on the iPhone. You have to put it on the screen, otherwise it's not there. So I, I like using that device form factor as a starting point here because you don't have this cop-out layer where you can take stuff and say, oh, well, just put that in the menu, right? Um, you have to determine whether it's actually important enough to be on the screen. And uh, working in that manner, not having a hardware 
uh, sort of dependency forces you to sort of work from uh, the principle of natural user interface where the content becomes the action. You only have this amount of screen space. You can't devote it to a lot of buttons and sliders and widgets and all these things because where's the content going to go? So what you end up doing with the UI is you work to make the actual content the user interface. So on the iPad, you touch these groups of photos, they expand. You go in there and you slide your finger across the photos. Right? The content becomes the interaction. Um, with these sorts of devices, I think that's a very good approach to doing design because it helps get people uh, interacting with the stuff that actually matters as opposed to fidgeting with you know, clothes icons and windows and all this other stuff that in the desktop takes up a ton of time. And by the way, when you move to the iPad, just because there's more screen space, you shouldn't add a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, the other reason why iPhone is kind of a nice platform to get you started on mobile, and don't worry, I'll talk about Android and all these other things in a second, uh, is it's surprising when stakeholders and kind of business owners and these sorts of things, people that generally don't care about design, when you all of a sudden start working on something on the iPhone, all of a sudden they really care about the design. So it's a nice opportunity to sort of push the design forward. And it, this is an image of an app that somebody made for the iPhone. And this is the Flickr conversation around it. Uh, Dear God, my iPhone's crying. Take his developer card away, please. This is why Apple shouldn't allow anybody else to make apps. There's this sort of bar that you have in place that people are subconsciously and sometimes even consciously aware of, right? So it pushes the design aesthetic forward, which is good. Okay, but if you're actually building for the mobile web, you have to think about more devices than just the iPhone. Maybe, maybe you don't, depending on what your strategy is. But regardless, you need a device strategy. I'm not going to get into how to create a mobile device strategy. It's a much longer conversation. But designing for multiple screens, if you choose to uh, work toward multiple devices, is something you need to take, account and take into account. So it used to be relatively easy. The iPhone came out, it was 320 by 480. The next series of Palm devices were the same. The first round of Android devices were the same. And roughly this magic number over here, the PPI, which I'll talk about in a second, the pixels per inch, was relatively consistent. Then you had the next set of Android devices, and I should put a few more of the new ones on here too, but all of a sudden they're you know, increasing the pixel density and they're really driving the PPI higher. And devices like the N900 and now the new iPhone 4 are moving the PPI from what you get on a typical desktop screen to 266. So what does this mean? It means that if you're looking at something at 72 pixels per inch, it's this big. On the N900, it's that big. So if you're designing for something on your uh, cinema display that's 94 pixels per inch, it looks that big. On Nokia N900, it's literally that big. Right? And this sort of device... Um, pixel per inch issue is something that people need to start taking into account because if you're working through your comps at this level, nobody's going to be able to use it. Um, so working in vectors can actually help a lot here and I'm still waiting for a product that works in vectors and then locks into specific PPI so you can just save out assets but that doesn't seem to exist. Okay, so uh, that's one thing to take into account and then if you're actually designing for multiple screens, this is something that I literally just took from Brian Rieger because I think he's done the best job of laying out a strategy here. Your first role is to say, okay, based on the devices we're targeting, here's kind of the way they group given their screen widths. And you can use things like Device Atlas to get a sense of what the screen widths out there and make your own grouping. There's lots of different groupings online. From those groupings, you say, okay, here, here's the reference design for this grouping. 
and you can design that sort of first. And then what you do is just define these rules for adaptation, right? So in our reference design, things work like this. When it goes to this other group, things shift like this. When it goes to this other group, things shift like that. So there you basically have this default reference design, then you lay out here's the rules on how it adapts when it moves between the different groups. And last but not least, especially on the web, if you use web standards and a flexible layout and now CSS3 media queries, you can actually get a lot of these things happening a little bit more dynamically as you uh, adjust things. So these fluid, scalable, flexible layouts, which always have been sort of a good practice, but people go back and forth, the grid, liquid, what have you. I think with a multiple device universe, it makes a lot more sense now to really always be thinking about fluid layout. Okay, so screen size forces you to focus. In order to focus, you have to know your users. Um, if you're going to start with some sort of device, I think a 320 by 480 is a pretty decent pixel screen size to start with. Um, speed is another thing that is a constraint on mobile that helps you get to good product design, period. So you never know when you're out and about when this happens. This happened to anybody? <clears throat> so you have to really try and drive for great performance. And there's two kind of big buckets of things you could do on mobile there. One is just reduce the amount of stuff you're sending over, right? And that's not just file size, but it's also the number of requests. And then the other thing, which I think is more exciting, most mobile, modern mobile devices have a lot of HTML5 capabilities built in. The notable exception is a Windows 7 phone, which is basically running IE7 with a little bit of IE8, and it's terrible. Uh, but everybody else is now coming onto WebKit. Nokia and RIM are sort of the laggards, but they both are uh, releasing WebKit browsers in their next OS. And inside of the WebKit, you've got HTML5 support for things like CSS3, for things like App Cache, which means you can store things locally. You can use code to create images instead of sending images over. So you can do gradients that way. You can do rounded corners that way, drop shadows, text shadows, all sorts of fun stuff. And performance doesn't just matter on mobile. It matters on mobile, obviously, because you have limited bandwidth. But across the web, there's examples left and right of how even millisecond delays add up to negative experiences. Google released a recent study that shows there's actually long-term effects to this. Uh, they did a study where they dropped search, uh, search speed a little bit in, in terms of milliseconds. And over the course of even three weeks, people weren't coming back. So because they have this bad experience with site performance, it doesn't just send them away right away, it keeps them away. And the third context that I think serves as a constraint is the fact that you have your mobile device with you everywhere and you're using it in these quick little bursts. So this is a Microsoft marketing video, but uh, it's hard to see, but it illustrates these little bursts, right? So here's a woman, oh, she sees something she likes, she's going to take a quick photo and send a picture of it. Right. Oh, here's a kid killing a couple minutes. He just checked the weather, and now he's playing a game for two minutes. Oh, and in comes a text message, so he's going to go give that to Dad, and Dad's going to you know, rattle off a thing. So she sends this over here, and then she's going to be in the record store. She's flipping through some photos and showing her friends. So these, it's these little micro-interactions going on throughout the day and in context, and those sort of define the kind of behavior people have with the uh, portable computing devices they have. In fact, in a typical day, you know, 80% of people are going to use their smartphone in miscellaneous times throughout the day. 74% of them are using them while sitting in line. So program or services and applications that are optimized for these quick burst use cases, small, quick time-killing tasks like things like Twitter and Facebook where you can just check in for a minute and see what's going on, 
these things are going crazy on the web, uh, on the mobile web and on mobile devices. 112% increase, 347% increase, because they're optimized for that use case. They're optimized for that. I got a couple minutes to kill. Let me just check in on something. But when you look at the rest of the web, it turns out that these quick in and out behaviors are really all over the place. So this is a study of a half a half a billion URLs, and the peak time that they were displayed for was between two and three seconds. In fact, over half of all the visits to any of these pages was uh, less than 10 seconds. So people are using these quick interactions anyway, and if you design for mobile first, you focus on these quick bursty interactions, and you get to have that advantage when you get to the desktop too. And the other interesting mobile constraint is uh, sort of one-handed touch. Has anybody seen somebody walk into the street doing this kind of thing? Right, so in order to accomplish this being effective, you have to you know, sort of simplify the UI, make sure it can be used with literally a thumb or a single finger, which is big, broad, simple actions. And again, simplifying your UI, your UI is a good thing. Okay, so that was constraints. Now, I'm sorry I'm going through this stuff fast. I want to get all this info in before uh, I keep you guys here too long. So when you look at constraints, there's uh, screen size, there's performance, and there's this mobile context. And when you start with the mobile version first, you apply those constraints and you get the benefit of being aware of those constraints when you move to the desktop. So you've made it really, really fast for mobile because performance matters. Well, it's going to be really fast on the desktop. You know, you've optimized it for these quick bursty in and out actions. Okay, well, now you've made something on the web that people can use every day. And uh, I guess the other thing about mobile context that I didn't mention, which is important, is your mobile device is something you have with you throughout the day. So when you create a service for it, you should think about something that people can use throughout the day or multiple times a day. And again, if you do that first, then when you get to the desktop, you have that benefit. Okay, capabilities is the next thing. And this is really an opportunity to come up with new inventive stuff. I talked about this kind of one-handed touch being a bit of a constraint, but touch is also a uh, capability you can start to innovate with. And uh, touch is really permeating modern um, operating systems. Let me just jump through this real quick. Uh, in 2009, there was a million touchscreen phones sold per day. While I'm standing here right now, 100,000 Android phones are going to be activated today. 97,000 iPhones are going to be sold today. 35,000 iPads are going to be sold today. All of these things are touch-capable devices, right? So looking at 2009, this is only going to ramp further. Every day, over a million internet-connected devices that are touch-enabled are put into consumers' hands. So if you have a website or a service that doesn't think about how people interact with it with touch, that's a million people that can't use it today. That's a million people that can't use it tomorrow. Right? And it starts adding up there. Uh, this is Nokia's smartphone mix roadmap. And you can see touch in 2008 was like a little blip. And in 2010, this year, it's more than half the pie. And Nokia is a company that you know, has put 1.1 billion devices into people's hands last year. So there's a lot of stuff happening here. If they're moving this aggressively into touch, it's, it matters. And recently, even Ubuntu released like touch gesture support. So if they've got it, you know, sort of a hint. <clears throat> so the first thing about designing for touch is being aware of touch targets. Uh, we'll also talk a little bit about core gestures. We'll talk about how you apply those things to user actions. So touch targets really matter because we have fat fingers, right? So the actual, see that little circle there? The actual touch target there is this yellow box. 
and Apple has this recommendation given their pixel per inch that it should be at least 44 pixels tall because the finger looks like yay when it comes onto the, the screen. Microsoft has done even more uh, research in here and they get into um, not only the recommended touch size but a minimum touch target size, the minimum spacing between elements, what the visual size should be. It's also important to note that here they're using millimeters which is dealing again with that pixel per inch model. Apple can specify it in pixels because before they were doing, dealing with a single PPI. When you get to multiple devices you actually have to start dealing with physical measurements because you don't know what the screen density is going to be on a mobile device. And these numbers are rooted from studies that basically show the average humor, human finger pad is 10 to 14 millimeters and the average fingertip is 8 to 10 millimeters. But and this is not going to show up in this dark room. If you see that cancel button, you see that little yellow overline? So this is how some of these systems enable the fudgy factor of the finger. So if you hit that cancel button anywhere in the yellow area, it's going to activate the uh, cancel button. And there's this green layer, which I'm going to outline for you because I can see it on my screen, which basically spans that amount of the screen. That while you're holding on the screen, if you move off that yellow button, but you're still in the green area, it's still going to trigger that action. If you move off the green thing, it's going to cancel that action. And so, again, if you're one click, one thumb walking, your finger moves around a little bit. So a lot of these operating systems have built in these affordances. If you start building something from scratch, you don't get these affordances for free. You need to kind of make sure you're cognizant of the fact that people can't really keep their finger on a single target area as they're walking around. So I mentioned some of the platforms. I think I should add Ubuntu and... Uh, Research in Motion's RIMS 6.0 thing because it supports multi-touch as well. I think Nokia's Mingo is on here as well. But what we did when we took a look at what are the basic touch gestures out there and how to use it, we looked at these platforms, we saw the touch gestures they supported, and we saw how they were applied in the platforms, and we tried to rationalize that out so you have a little bit of a toolkit. And if you look across these platforms, you can basically define some core gestures. One is tap it, the screen double tap it and there's multiple finger versions of the first one. It's sort of weird to double tap with multiple fingers so that isn't very well supported. Uh, you can drag things and you can flick things. Flick is sort of this quick brush and there's multiple finger versions of a drag, not so much flick. You can pinch and spread things and there's multiple finger versions of that. You can press, which is hold something down, press and tap, press and drag and there's a couple of variations on the rotate gesture. So these were kind of the core gestures that we identified across all these platforms, but then how do you use them? The important thing here is to know what's somebody trying to achieve. Are they trying to open something? Are they trying to select something? Are they trying to delete something, duplicate something, move something? Uh, are they trying to pan through a list or scroll through a list? So this uh, reference document that you can get a hold of here lays out these touch gestures from a person wants to do blank, here's the common touch gesture that's supported across most platforms and here's what it's called and how you can implement it. From there you can start defining customized gestures. So this is Microsoft Surface where they have these user participation gestures and they take these core gestures and they sort of extend them. Right? So this is essentially drag that they've turned into um, some simple drawing mechanisms. So okay, if touch is a capability, what can you do with it? This is Yahoo's finger food app. You open the app it makes a map of where you are. You draw a line or you draw a circle and it says, okay, here's all the food in that area that you just drew. 
So instead of typing anything in or typing in a street corner or doing any of this sort of stuff, you just sort of draw and use gestures as input to go and search for places to eat. In fact, touch is making even basic, simple things uh, better. So this is a drop-down menu on the desktop. Has anybody tried to manipulate these? When you get to like 50 states and they're two characters wrong, it's really great. On a touch-enabled phone, same interaction, you get this big touch target, and you can essentially flick through this wheel, get to what you want really quickly, and uh, hit a simple target, and you're done. And Android also has support for this. Not as slick, but still. And even to the extent that you can combine these together. So instead of dealing with three drop-down menus for date, like you have to on the web here, you've just got one scrolly wheel, and you move through and touch it, which I think makes things better. And uh, Android does the same thing. Okay, next thing I want to talk about is there is no hover. So in some cases, hover's kind of a decent thing on the web. This is Netflix, and when you hover over it, it gives you this back of Bob thing. They spent a lot of time tuning and optimizing this in terms of how it behaves. But then they started creating these kinds of hovers. And when you go to something like a Barnes & Noble, you don't know what is going to hover where when you move your poor little mouse around here. And the problem with hover is that hover's not an intentional user action, right? It's sort of, we're assuming this is what the user wants and we're doing things on it. So in general, it's um, usually a negative on the, on the user experience side of the coin, in particular because there's, you know, these expectations aren't there. When you're on a touchscreen device, there is no hover because there's no mouse cursor. So all the stuff you threw in here and said, oh, we'll just put that in a rollover layer. Well, guess what? Now you have to decide if it goes on the screen or not which again brings you back to this level of focus. You can't use the hover as a crutch. You can still use um, tips that think that, you know, a lot of times hover gestures are used for tips and information on the web. You can pop in a little thing and then fade it out and give people tips that way instead of relying on the hover. Okay, so that's location. That's a great capability. That's permeating major platforms. Designing for mobile first forces you to think about how your web service is going to work on these touch-based devices. And there's a lot more of those devices out there than ever before. Location is another capability that's sort of built into these devices. So on the desktop, to find somewhere to eat in San Jose, I type a bunch of stuff, I get this map, and anybody in here that knows San Jose knows that this is a huge area to cover. So I'm spending a bunch of time now flicking through these filters, moving through this list, moving around the map. When I use Yelp on the mobile, it default opens to what's near me. I just tap restaurants, and here's what's near me right now. Right, so really reduces the level of input and gets you information you care about right away. And in fact, sometimes you don't even have to type in any input. This is an app called Where, and it just grabs your location and says, here's the cheapest gas near you, here's the weather near you, here's local news near you, you can get traffic near you, you can get movies near you. And it just gives it to you. You don't have to do anything, right? So it reduces input down to opening an app. Uh, if you're interested, these are the types of systems that are in mobile services or mobile devices and the degree of accuracy. They have different battery life and accuracy implications. Here's some more detail on it. I won't go into it. But touch and location are very interesting capabilities, and hopefully that gives you a little bit of a sense of why it makes sense to design with them up front. Right? So if you assume you have location, that'll give you a different lens on your design. If you assume you have um, Touch capabilities, that will give you a different lens on your design. If you're designing for the desktop, you can't assume you have that. And in fact, we looked at app cache for local storage when we talked about performance. We talked about multi-touch. We talked about local uh, location detection. There's a whole bunch more capabilities that these devices have right now that you can just assume 
are in the device when you design for mobile first and then backwards work away from them when you get to the desktop. And by the way, the desktops are increasingly taking these things into them. So now Safari 5, Firefox 3.5, Chrome, all of them have the geolocation API, which gives you pretty reliable location information. Uh, Dell has released a bunch of new netbooks and laptops with GPS devices in them. So these things are coming to the desktop more and more. Um, and I think that's a good thing. Uh, for, for example, Safari just, or Firefox recently released push notifications into the browser. Um, I have a whole series of things about some of the capabilities you can do. I'm going to go through this really fast. Orientation, when you change orientations, are you going to use that as an opportunity to make things better, give people more room to type and include an action, or is the thing going to break when people change orientation? Particularly on the iPad, there is no default orientation, so it's a, a thing you need to consider. This is the little, it's a little notebook, and it flips into this mode. So it's an orientation change. How are you going to design your cooking service differently when somebody flips it like this and is actually in the kitchen making something? Or they're in kind of this kind of mode. All right. So orientation right now is relatively early, but this is Firefox 3.6. It supports accelerometer access. This demo is a little gimmicky, but you can start to think about, okay, when somebody changes the orientation of the device they have, how are you going to change the experience? Is it going to be for the better or is it going to be for the worse? And what kinds of new things can we enable based on the fact we know the direction the device is, is, is positioned? We also know the, orient, the, the direction the user is positioned. So through location, we know where you are. Through a digital compass or a magnometer, we know what direction you're facing, which means we can do crazy stuff like this, which two years ago, if I showed the slide, it would be science fiction. But today, Yelp, which released this little augmented reality monocle has seen a 40 to 50% sustained traffic increase through what they thought was an Easter egg. The UI on these augmented reality applications is pretty clunky and broken, but the idea of overlaying digital information on the world around you as you're currently experiencing it, pretty cool. Uh, voice, you can always do voice on the desktop, but it's really clunky. Google's uh, Nexus One Anytime there's an input field, you can hit a button or swipe the keyboard and talk into it. And it uses that as input. So you'll see an example in here where you can search on Amazon using your voice. You can type a Facebook status. And you saw that little swipe with the finger. This is great for when you're walking. You just kind of move your finger across the keyboard and say something into it instead of trying to type into it. So audio input is a capability you have available to you when you think about designing for the desktop or for the mobile first. Uh, video and audio and image input is also something you have available to you when you think about designing for mobile first. This is Google Goggles. You can take a picture of a book. It'll look it up for you, tell much how it costs, where you can get it. You can take a picture of a wine label. You can take a picture of a business card. It'll use OCR to scan the information and put it into your address book. You can take a picture of a work of art. It'll identify it for you. You can take a picture of a landmark and using your location and the image, it'll uh, you what you're looking at. You can take a picture of foreign text and it'll translate it for you. So this is very early kind of crazy stuff but the fact that everybody's got a integrated video and image capturing device in their pocket, that's a really interesting capability that you can apply. So now we've walked through that many capabilities. There's even more iPhone 4 introduced a gyroscope and for introduced dual cameras on the mobile device, right? So if you start, and I keep saying this, if you start with the desktop, you can't assume you have any of this stuff. If you start with the mobile, you can assume you have all this stuff and it'll probably lead you to very interesting interactions with your service or your product. 
You may have to back out of some of those when you go back to the desktop, but at least on the mobile you'll have that great experience that takes advantage of this stuff. If you do the desktop version first and you never consider any of this, when you port it to mobile, it's just going to be you know, like the same desktop version without any of these capabilities and any of these opportunities to do something interesting. So those are the three things, uh, wrapping it up. Mobile's growing like crazy. That gives you a lot of opportunity to take advantage of it. And it's not just to have a mobile version, but it's to make your overall experience better through the integration of mobile. The constraints force you to focus, small screen, slow connections, mobile context, quick burst to use. Focus is always a good thing. Uh, as um, I kind of mentioned at the beginning, I have a startup right now, and the number one thing we hear from everybody is focus, 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 focus. Right? So um, it's clearly something that's top of mind and seems to yield some kind of value. And then capabilities, we talked about that. You've got all this stuff you can build on. Do it. And these are just some of the things I gave you to get going. How do you deal with multiple screen sizes and densities? Uh, performance optimization tips for mobile touch targets, gestures, and actions. What can you do for location? What are the capabilities that are out there? If you're interested in more, uh, I Twitter about this stuff, I write about this stuff, and if you want a book about web forms, you can get it cheap. Okay, Whew. sorry I went through that fast, but I uh, wanted to well, make sure you guys got it. lunch, and uh, I got through it. If you guys uh, absolutely have to go, go ahead. We're going to do like five minutes of uh, Q&A really quick. Um, so if anybody has a question that came up during the thoughts, is there uh, anything you shouldn't be designing your... Any product that you shouldn't be designing for on the smartphone? Sure, I'm sure there's some use cases of things that don't make sense at all on the mobile, but in general, it's um, additive, right? Uh, again, I've been seeing more and more examples where companies that take, and like, let's use the, the uh, OpenTable example. So, OpenTable is a service for making reservations at restaurants that you can do online. You can go in there and make a reservation. They introduce a mobile component where you use, it uses your current location to show you what's near you, and you can make reservations right then and there. Right. And, and they have integration with the phone, so you can call them, what have you. Uh, the, I can't remember the exact numbers, but they've seen something like a 25 to 40% increase in usage just through that simple capability. And they've seen something like 500,000 um, phone calls made through the app to locations, just through their iPhone app, to, uh, to restaurants per week, something like that. They're just crazy integration. And this is, you know, like a restaurant reservation thing. Uh, Zillow is a real estate app. Uh, Yelp is a place to go eat. Yeah. I showed other examples. You know, Southwest Airlines is a airline company. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's all these guys have something to do on mobile. Um, yeah, I think. Or maybe, maybe not. Well, the presence of ads is another design constraint. Yeah, it's actually great. It's not enough room for big honking hands. Except that we seem to be being pushed that way. Uh, oh, to put more ads in there? Well, yeah, they seem to be showing up by themselves. Yeah, I think the market will fix that appropriately. Uh, you know, because with, with applications, you choose to download them and you remove them or add them at yourself, right? So if there's something that's annoying you or you don't use, it kind of goes away. And uh, gives people and uh, gives another competitor an opportunity to get in there. I also think that with all these sensors that I outlined before, it actually gives advertisements an opportunity to be more relevant to you. Because there's sometimes when you actually want advertising. Right? Oh, I really want to eat something now. 
give me the offers around food based on where I'm at. Don't give me those offers around food when I'm browsing for a new car on the internet. Yeah. On the content side of things, you didn't really address this and you get a lot of the interaction with the community. Have you seen any differences in how people read stuff? Because you're saying that most people are just opening things up and then shutting them down. Is that refocus your attention how you write to the web then? Or is it, what have we learned about the content? I think the same rules that make good content writing on the web are the same things that make good content writing on mobile times two, right? So getting to the point quickly, making sure you have scannable headlines and sections, not being overly verbose, which is all good on the web because people essentially scan content on the web to a large extent. I think uh, Jacob Nielsen released a study recently that said 25% of people actually read an entire article. 75% of them, you know, scan the bulk of it. And we saw the same thing when we looked at Yahoo News and Yahoo Sports yeah. and all this. On the web or mobile? Web. This was on the web. And so on the mobile, it's probably even more exaggerated. That said, there are new services that are popping up that are optimizing readership for these new connected devices. And the example I like to use, you guys may not be familiar with or maybe familiar with, is called Instapaper. So Instapaper is an app that when you see an article on the web you just save it for later and it strips out all of the navigation and everything and just gives you like the text rendered as a nice article and then you can access that on any other device so what I've been doing and many people that I've talked to do the same thing is they'll go and save a bunch of articles on the web and then they'll sit on their couch with their iPad and just kind of read through it as if it's a personalized newspaper for them so it's actually more reading um, because the device is better optimized for readability and the content that they get through the Instapaper channel is more optimized. In fact, Safari 5 introduced this controversial feature called Reader. Yeah. Well, it'll take any page. It's great. I use that thing all the time. It strips everything away. It makes it, you know, nice and big text. You can just sort of get to the content and read it. It's, yeah, it's, it's really, really fantastic. And this goes back to the point about consumers are going to start demanding this. Right? Like, I can click this button and read this in this beautiful prose. Why the heck, when I go to your website, is there 50 million navigation options and 20 million ads attacking me? Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that's the other thing that both these features do. They'll go through the pages and roll it up for you, which is just good user experience. You know, and the content publishers should embrace that model and give people content in the way they want it rather than fighting them because they're gonna, people are gonna get their own way anyway, and the tools are there. Yeah. With all this stuff that's on these mobile devices, how do you make a decision on what's gonna be useful and what's gonna be just gimmicky? Yeah. Uh, again, it boils. If you go through that focus process of determining what your users want and what you make money off of, then you can use that as a lens to filter against this, right? So our core premise is to let people make reservations at restaurants. What applies there? Uh, oh, location. <laughs> Right, oh, okay, this integration with the phone, that probably applies there. Um, okay, maybe some kind of, you know, a video integration of where they are to orient them and get yeah, them well, there. So, Maps so I integration. That would be really gimmicky. I would think there's no way that needs to go in there, but they found that that's Seems really like it. So maybe I was shocked by this. I was as shocked by this as Jeremy was, because uh, they thought of this as an Easter egg, essentially, right? The, you know, the way a lot of technologies kind of goes that the first uses are really, really awkward. And then they, even like the phone, you know, the first phone conversation, like, hello, hello, hello. Oh, 
really, really awkward. People didn't know what to do with the technology. Now it's sort of secondhand and these norms develop and um, people figure out how to use it. So I think these interactions are very awkward. I agree with you and potentially gimmicky, but moving forward, the ability to have digital information augment your current view of reality when you want it, that is, is cool, right? Like, oh, how much is that house right next to me worth? Oh, what kind of food do they have inside of this place? Uh, you know, is it, what kind of rates are inside this bank? All, there's so many different use cases that kind of pop up. It gets interesting. Yeah. What's your take in terms of apps um, that are running on these mobile platforms? How much of them, what percentage of them are native code versus mobile, mobile? websites? And where do you see that trend going? And Hopefully it's going more towards the mobile web. Uh, you know, a lot of these browser manufacturers are putting in more support. The thing you don't get with mobile browsers right now is integration into the OS, which is why a lot of people, people will create native apps for two reasons, OS integration or discovery through the app store, because you get that marketing channel. And right now there's a lot of stuff that you get through building for the native OS that you don't get through the browser, like simple things even like image and video integration, you can't do that in the browser yet. But I hope that the, all these vendors continue to push that forward. And ultimately, it's not sustainable to uh, uh, to try and build an app for 50 different app stores. Right? It's just not going to work. All right. All right. Let's Thanks. Thank Luke.